the number one thing is reducing stress because stress is the boner killer, right? And we all get boners, clitorises get boners, penises get boners. But when you are stressed out, it really detracts from your natural inclination towards sex. Welcome to How Do You Feel, a podcast with info and inspo to help you tune in to your fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I'm your host, Casey Zavaleta, and together we'll explore how we can optimize our physical and mental health so that we radiate positivity and happiness from the inside out. Hi guys, to all of my Canadian listeners, happy Thanksgiving, and to all of my American listeners who are confused, yes, Canadian Thanksgiving happens in the middle of October before Halloween. It definitely threw me off the first year I was here, but now I love it because it means I get to celebrate two Thanksgivings a year, which means I get pumpkin pie twice a year, which is my favorite dessert in the whole world. I hope that everyone is celebrating their Thanksgiving with friends and family, eating probably way too much really good food, but enjoying every single second of it. I have a very special treat for you guys today. We're talking about a really fun, kind of risky topic. We're talking about sex and relationships on the podcast. Today, I am joined by Dr. Jess, who is a Toronto-based sexologist, author, and TV personality. Jess has worked with thousands of couples from all over the globe to transform their relationships in her successful program called Marriage as a Business. To get her PhD, Jess studied sexual health and relationship education, and she's passionate about accessible classroom-based education. She's constantly traveling all over the world for speaking engagements on sex and relationships. She's truly an expert in the field, and I'm so honored that she sat down to talk with me. It was my first time ever speaking to a sexologist, and I learned so much, so I'm pumped for you guys to hear from her, and hopefully she'll open your mind a little bit to thinking about sex and relationships in a different way. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Jess. Hi, Jess. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. You have quite the extensive and interesting bio, which I'm going to put all of that in the show notes, but I'm hoping that you can just tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is a sexologist does. Well, every sexologist is a little different. Some are therapists, some are, some are educators, some are more focused on public education, some are on private education. So anyone who studies sex is a sexologist. I do a little bit of everything and I spend most of my time talking to groups, primarily entrepreneurs and people who lead businesses about how to have more fulfilling relationships. So it's probably about 80% relational and then 20% sex because if you don't have that foundation, the sex is going to suffer or it's entirely off the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So I normally have guests on the podcast where I feel like we're talking about a subject matter that I have some competence in. And so I feel like I can really add value to the conversation. But this is going to be an interesting one today because this stuff is very new and very foreign to me. So it's going to be exciting because I feel like I'm going to learn a lot. I do know though, and the reason that I wanted to have you on is I have this feeling that having a really healthy and robust sex life is such an important part of being healthy and an important part of your well-being. 
So I'm hoping that you can just tell us a little bit about why that is and why having a good sex life and having strong relationships play into that. Well, relationships are the determining factor when we look at life satisfaction and fulfillment. So there was an interesting, you know, Harvard study that looked at people across the span of almost 80 years, and they found that warm relationships were the defining factor in not only life satisfaction, but also in income. So even having healthy relationships is not only good for your mental health, your physical health, your emotional well-being, and life satisfaction, but even for your income, the support that we garner from all the people around us. And this doesn't just mean intimate partners. It's the way we relate to, sure, perhaps your primary partner, to your closest friends, to your parents if they're in your life, to your children if they're in life, siblings. These relationships are the foundation of our being, our health, our wealth, our fitness, and so on. And we have a wealth of research, of course, showing the connection between sex as well and overall health. The important component, I think, to highlight when it comes to sex is that it's not necessarily about frequency, although we can talk about that as well, but it's about the quality and your own estimation of the quality of your sex life. So I cannot look in from the outside and say, that's a good sex life, because what's good to me may not be good to somebody else. And you can be perfectly healthy and not want sex and cultivate happy relationships that are not sexual. And you can be perfectly healthy and want sex as often as you can with as many people as you can within the context of happy, healthy, fulfilling relationships. So there's quite a continuum and quite a significantly diverse spectrum of what can lead to sex that is good for your overall life satisfaction. That's interesting. I feel like people are very often influenced by expectations, maybe, um, of how often they should be having sex and what kind of sex and how, you know, novel it should be and all of these things. So it's a really good point that it really shouldn't matter what everyone else is expecting of you. If you're inherently satisfied in it, and if you do have a partner, if they're satisfied, then that's really all you can ask for. Absolutely. And there is no one size fits all approach similar to fitness or to diet or to any form of wellness. What works for you may not work for my body. And then sex, of course, is beyond the body. There's the emotional, psychological, relational, even social, and for some of us, political components that tie in to the way we define happy, healthy, exciting sex. And so I'm always concerned because part of my job, of course, involves exploring this range of options in order to make sex more novel or explore new facets of sexuality. And you don't have to do all those things. You do not have to check off a checklist and say, yes, I've done group sex or I've done public sex or I've had a threesome or I've had anal or any of these perhaps edgier activities to have a fulfilling sex life. You can have monogamous sex in the dark in the missionary position if you and your partner find it satisfying. And most of us do desire some degree of novelty, but our desire for risk varies from person to person. Some of us are real risk and thrill seekers in life. And some of us don't need that much risk and thrill. If you look at business, it's the same thing. Some of us desire you know, a, a change every couple of years and others are really satisfied launching one business or having one career over the course of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. That's such a good point. I do want to talk a little bit about if you're not feeling satisfied sexually, how you can go about fulfilling that need for yourself. And I know that's a broad question, but um, I guess I'm wondering in the, in the counseling that you do, if there are steps that you take with people to help them find more satisfaction in their sexual lives. 
first we want to look at what is the source of dissatisfaction? So is it around quality? Is it around frequency? Is it around the lack of emotional connection? Uh, is it around pressure? And is it around shame? So for many folks, we have to take responsibility for ourselves first. We can't just look to our partner as the source of sexual distress or dissatisfaction. And we have a tendency to say, oh, well, they never want to do it, or they always want to do the same things. But really, we have to look at ourselves first. And many of us, of course, were raised with messages of sexual shame. And this, these messages are highly gendered. They are rooted in culture and race. And so we have to look at how do we overcome that shame? So that's the first step is getting rid of the shame so that people can simply have permission to enjoy their own bodies, to enjoy the sexual experience, whether you classify it as purely carnal and physical or as emotional and spiritual, perhaps, and you have to define what works for you. So once we break through the sexual hangups and shame, then we really need to understand ourselves a little bit better because again, oftentimes we will complain about something, but we don't really know what we want. And then we're frustrated that our partners don't deliver on these expectations that have yet to be clearly communicated. So I often, if I were to put it in really simplified terms, break it down into these three F's that you should discuss. Feelings, frequency, fantasy. So feelings, I'm referring to what I call your core erotic feeling. Your core erotic feeling is the feeling with which you associate sex most intensely. So in order to even consider having sex, I need to feel loved. Or in order to get in the mood for sex, I need to feel really sexy and desired. Or in order to get in the mood for sex, I need a little bit of a challenge. Or in order to get in the mood for sex, I need to be really relaxed. And, and you need to figure out what your core erotic feeling is because everybody's is different. Mm -hmm. And once you figure out what your, I call it your CEF is, you need to figure out how you can make yourself feel that way on your own, in your own life. And then that's say 80% of the job. If you have a partner, 20% can be teaching them, guiding them to help also support you in experiencing that emotion. So again, your core erotic feeling is the feeling without which sex is entirely off the table. If I don't feel safe, sex is not going to be on the table. If I don't feel appreciated, now I'm naming all these different emotions and everybody has a different core erotic feeling. And you might say, oh, those all sound appealing to me. But oftentimes there is one, maybe two, that is really indispensable to potentially getting the mood for sex. Does that mean every time I feel safe that I want sex? Not necessarily, but it means that it's more possible. Now, once you figure out your core erotic feeling and you're in a perhaps a long-term relationship, you might find that you always feel that way. So for example, if mine were, I, I just need to feel really loved. Well, I always feel loved. Honestly, I, my, my husband is, is full of love for me. And, and I, there's never really a point where I feel neglected uh, because he shows me love in so many beautiful, intense ways. But that may not be that exciting. And so once you've got that core erotic feeling worked out, you might find that you can explore what I call your elevated erotic feeling. And that is the emotion that takes sex to the next level. So maybe because my core erotic feeling, and I'm, I'm just using this example, is feeling loved, and I'm already feeling very loved, maybe I start to get turned on by feeling jealous. Or maybe I start to be turned on by feeling at risk. Or, you know, this is why people perhaps who enjoy kinky sex can enjoy feeling humiliated, can enjoy feeling degraded. And of course, your elevated erotic feeling doesn't need to be that subversive, but oftentimes it is. Oftentimes it's an emotion 
that is generally uncomfortable, but you're able to subvert it into a pleasurable experience. So that, that's kind of theoretical stuff to discuss your core erotic feeling. Just begin with what is the feeling I want to feel in order to have sex and then convey it to your partner. And then the second is frequency, which we spoke about really briefly, but I think most of us don't talk about frequency in hard numbers. We say things like, oh, my partner never wants it. Oh, my partner wants it all the time. And so I have people do an activity where you take a piece of paper and on that piece of paper, you write down how often you want to have sex. Do you want it once a day, once a week, once a fiscal year, once a quarter? How often do you want it? And then draw a line and write down how often you perceive your partner to want it. Because oftentimes, if you want it more than your partner, it feels like they're always saying no. So you tend to underestimate how often they want it. And if you want sex less often than your partner, it feels like they're always walking around like a dog begging for, for treats. And so you tend to overestimate how often they want it. And so if you can both do this and have a laugh and have a discussion and talk in hard numbers, you can look for some common ground. This doesn't mean that if I want it five times a week and my partner wants it one time a week that we have it right in the middle, but you know, I might have to take care of myself sometimes. They might be willing to lend me a hand sometimes. Uh, oftentimes the higher desire partner treats the lower desire partner like they're broken and need to be fixed and expects them to come up without realizing that they also have to come down in their expectations. Mm, and, you know, one of the challenges, of course, with all of this is monogamy because over the long term, you know, we didn't used to live 80 years. So marriages weren't so incredibly long. And in the West, we have this expectation that a partner, a singular partner, should fulfill every single one of our needs, practical, emotional, spiritual, and of course, sexual. And I think we could broaden our horizons a little bit to acknowledge that because we are so drawn to novelty, because most of us like a little bit of risk, we need to open up what monogamy looks like and also talk about what monogamy means because all the research shows that monogamy means different things to different people it's individual it's familial it's, it's sociocultural and ethnocultural as well so we need to talk about what it means uh, and especially in the context of frequency because here's the thing if i want sex every day and my partner wants it once a year it will be difficult to bridge that compatibility gap. I often say that compatibility has less to do with what you want or how often you want it and more to do about your willingness to put in effort to meet one another's needs. But once a year to every day is quite a compatibility gap to bridge. So we've got our frequency uh, and then finally your fantasies. So most people aren't gonna describe every fantasy in intricate detail but I suggest two approaches to talking about your fantasies and exploring your fantasies. Number one, look for the thematic elements. Like what are the things that run through the, the scenes that really turn you on? Is it the element of, of being in public? Is it an element of having many people around? Is it an element of risk? Uh, is there an element of, of rough play? Because without revealing everything, you can better understand yourself if you look for the themes. And then one of the best ways to do that is using pop culture. Do you see something on TV and it turns you on? Ask yourself why. Do you see something on TV and it turns you off? Ask yourself why. And then you can use your Netflix sessions as fodder for discussion with a partner to simply say, oh, I like that. And then they'll say, oh, well, what do you like about that? Or they might say like, oh, that, that makes me uncomfortable. And then you can talk about the discomfort because the real magic happens in those areas of discomfort. Mm -hmm. So much interesting stuff in there. I feel that it's interesting because 
you know, you're saying 80% of the work is done on, with yourself. So that's a lot of reflecting and that's a lot of taking ownership over some of these things that we do tend to project to other people or, you know, to our partners. But then there's that element of the communication has to be there. Because once you understand yourself, it doesn't necessarily mean that your partner will. So people talk about how important communication is in relationships all the time. But this is a great example of how if you don't share and you don't tell them all these things that you're learning about yourself and discovering about yourself, nothing's going to change. And they're not coming from the same place necessarily. Yes. And the reason expectations are not met oftentimes is because we have not acknowledged our own and communicated them. So we have this, you know, I want you to make me feel a certain way, but I've never really said it in words, right? And we see this around like fighting. What do you want out of this fight? Because you're going head to head and you're trying to win, but nobody has communicated clearly what they want from the other, other than to win, (laughs) to be right. right. So yeah, we have to be clearer about our expectations, especially when it comes to emotions. And I think emotional literacy is really what we all need to work on being more in touch with a a greater range of emotions and not just angry and sad. So society has painted a very specific picture about how women are, or at least I'm talking about our society, the society I grew up in, uh, North America, has painted a pretty specific picture about how women are supposed to express their sexuality. But there's been a lot of research that's been refuting those things lately and some of the, the assumptions that we had about women and sexuality. I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about those things and about female sexuality. Yeah, I think the most important finding in all sexuality research is that there is a broad range of experiences and expectations and likes and dislikes. And when we paint one gender with broad strokes, we do ourselves a massive disservice. For example, if you talk about research around women's desire for casual sex, some research has shown that when you eliminate the risk, because women, we walk around protecting our bodies because we fear assault, because being harassed and assaulted, harassed is the norm, and assaulted is quite common. And so we navigate the world in a different way and that affects how we date. And so our primal desire for sex can be affected by the reality of the risk we face. So when you eliminate the risk, women tend to be more open to casual sex. We see research around cheating Men have always cheated more often than women. Uh, We're talking in a heterosexual context here, but women are now closing the gap when it comes to cheating. And what I think is that we're going to see, if we get even more honest data from women, I think that gap is going to get even smaller because I think women are still lying to themselves about cheating. We lie even on anonymous surveys because we don't want to admit that we've done things. Cheating is one of those hot topics. Of course, you don't want to be dishonest with anyone. Of course, you don't want to hurt or betray the person that you've committed to and and really genuinely love. But the reality is that sexual infidelity is common. One quarter of folks admit that they have cheated on their partner. And that number is very, very underestimated because people don't want to admit to themselves. So we are seeing a shift in research to acknowledge 
a broader range of experiences and not just for women, but also for men. So for example, we often paint men with a broad stroke with the, with the understanding that, oh, they should always want sex. They're animals. They just want it. They don't care how it is. They don't need foreplay. They just want to get it in and get it done. And, and they don't have the emotional need and they're not complex. And of course, the research shows the opposite. Men are highly neurologically responsive to emotional stimuli. And in fact, in some brain scan research, they see that men are more emotionally responsive, neurologically speaking. But then when you ask them, when they're out of the brain scan, what they experience, they're less likely to be, for example, emotionally effusive. Uh, but for cultural reasons, because there are limitations on what men are given permission to express. Men, for example, I saw one piece of research suggesting that 28% of men experience low sex drive, so a sex drive that they consider distressful. Another piece of research out of Britain recently, when they were asking people if they want more sex in their relationship, it was the women who were more likely to report a desire for an increase in frequency. When you ask men how long they want foreplay to last, they offer a similar number to women. When you ask men if they want to feel love and, and feel tenderness and a desire for emotional connections, they have the same human desire. And we don't allow, we really disallow the expression of that desire. And again, this is costing all people. It's costly to men, it's costly to women, it's costly to people of all genders and sexual orientations. And so breaking down these gender norms and maybe even eradicating the social construct of gender because it's far more complex and fluid than we realize would solve so many of the problems with which people come to me. Yeah, 100%. Where did these norms come from? Like, where did it come from that we expect men to be so sexual, always wanting it, and women to be the opposite? That's a good question. So there are theories that it was the Victorian age or it was Christianity that wanted to squash female sexuality or saw female sexuality as a threat because often they exist in juxtaposition to one another, right? The, the, the meek woman protecting and gatekeeping only exists if you've got this beast who's trying to ravage her and needs to be tamed. So one works in hand with the other. Of course, there are evolutionary theories that have been held over. Like for example, men need to spread their seed. Uh, and, and so there is some interesting consideration, I would say, that could be given to evolutionary psychology. But what we have to remember is that we are no longer in the wild. Survival is no longer our focus in the West where we have so much privilege. Uh, why is sex as complicated as it is? Why are relationships as complicated as they are? Because we have too much privilege. We know most of us are not, many of us are not worried about food or shelter or ensuring that we aren't eaten by a lion. And so we can look at more complex forms of fulfillment. And I think that's why so many of us want to challenge. I think another issue around relationships is, as I said, we just live longer. And monogamy is a more modern human invention. It's not how humans lived in the bulk of our existence. And love marriages, love, love and sex being tied together, those are also modern notions. We treat them as though they are God-given or as though they are non-negotiable innate needs. And I think that that's also part of why relationships fail. We commit to one person for life without considering whether or not we really want to, without saying, you know what, I have all these other options. I could be in an open relationship. I could date multiple people. I could stay single. All of those are valid options. And as is, 
a commitment to marriage or monogamy for a lifetime. But I think that commitment will have a stronger foundation if it is presented as a choice and you've considered all your options as opposed to accepting it as a default setting. Yeah, definitely. I do want to talk about open relationships. I should preface this by saying I'm personally in a very satisfying, super happy, loving, monogamous relationship, but I just find this concept so interesting. And I heard you say that 20% of Canadians have been in an open relationship at some point. Is that true? Yeah, I think that's an American study, but North American, yeah. So 20%, one in five have tried an open relationship, but new data out of Canada, really interestingly, 12% consider an open relationship their ideal relationship format. And I do think young folks are more open to not only considering what we call consensual non-monogamy, CNM, or an open relationship, but I also think that because they've seen their parents' relationships fail, or because they've seen their parents or other people around them in unhappy relationships, they're really custom designing their relationships. So there's not, you know, a dichotomy like closed and open. There Mm -hmm. really is a spectrum and a continuum. And what I'm seeing is more people open to discussing what it might look like, even if they're not embracing it at this time. In 10 years, they might consider opening it up in some way. And opening, of course, doesn't mean that you're out having sex with whomever you choose or that you're dating 12 people at once. Open for some people can be going away once a year and having a sexual experience with a third party or two other people that one time. Open can mean talking with other people, kind of chatting, teasing, flirting. It doesn't necessarily lead to an orgy, which is what I think a lot of people assume. And so there's very interesting relationship research around CNM, so consensual non-monogamy. The outcomes for monogamy versus CNM are almost identical in terms of trust, in terms of satisfaction, in terms of playfulness, in terms of passion, and in terms of commitment. There is a need to communicate very specifically in CNM relationships. And I think that's something that we can all embrace regardless of relationship status to really talk about expectations with specificity. So if I were to say to my husband, oh, I want to open up our relationship, that is not even the tip of the iceberg because we would talk about, well, what does that entail? Whom might that entail? When might this work for us? When might it not? What boundaries do we want to set? So the requirement for specific conversation, as opposed to the shorthand that most of us engage with, oh, you want to get married? Yeah, I want to get married. But you never even talk about what that means. Mm -hmm. What are your expectations? So I tell people, please stop planning your weddings and start planning your marriages. I actually have this new course on 50 exercises, and many of them are conversations that couples should engage in before they even consider moving in together or getting married. And even if they have been doing it 10 years, living together 10 years, it's never too late to start talking about some of these values because what any therapist will tell you is that people come to you when it's, it's just too late. These things mm. have been dragging on for three, four, five, six, seven years, sometimes decades, and they want to resolve it in these 50-minute sessions once a week. We're looking at you know, like fire prevention. It's preventative approaches or more you know, foundational approaches to building a relationship, to custom designing the relationship. And it changes over time. You know, I've been with my partner for 18 years. We were kids when we met. And I can't tell you how different it is today than it was five or 10 years ago. And I expect it to be different 
five or 10 years from now, and we won't be able to cultivate that difference unless we communicate about our needs, our fears, our expectations, our boundaries. And I'll say, I think that is what's lacking in relationships, uh, especially in North America, is a willingness to be vulnerable, a willingness to admit that we're afraid, that we're insecure, that we feel jealous, for example. People always say, well, don't you get jealous of your husband? Yeah, of course I get jealous at times, but jealousy is not a bad thing. If my response to jealousy is negative, then it's negative. But jealousy can be exciting. It can help you to identify what you value, normative jealousy, not obsessive jealousy. And so I'm nobody is immune from emotion. Some people will claim like, well, I've never felt any jealousy in my life. Well, you're not human if you don't experience emotion. You may have never acknowledged that jealousy, but off, let's say you feel jealous of someone, you know, you might criticize them. You might lash out. You might withdraw. Those are probably going to be destructive responses to jealousy. But if you were to stop and say like, yeah, what is it here that's, that's making me feel this little tingle that doesn't feel good? I might be able to identify what it is and I might be able to embrace some of that myself or I might be able to adjust my behavior or my, you know, the way I think. Or I, in, in the case of a relationship, I might be able to turn to my partner and ask for reassurance. So we need yeah. to be a little bit more vulnerable and that's how you cultivate intimacy by expressing vulnerability and then being met with love and support. Yeah. And again, it just starts with that willingness to admit it to yourself and to understand yourself and understand what it is that you're actually feeling and name that as something and then understand how it's manifesting in your life. Because if you don't start there, you can't then translate it to what's happening with your partner. Agreed. I'm curious in these open relationships, how do people go about setting the specific boundaries and the specific agreements? And then what if someone does step beyond that? That's, I guess, a form of cheating in that open relationship. But how do you sort of navigate those things? Well, I would say most people are having really formal, the people who do it well, sorry, are having formal discussions. Some of them even use workbooks. There's one by Dr. Liz Powell on open relationships that offers both the theory and the practice. So you can kind of go through a list of things and say, are you okay with this? Yes. Are you okay with this? No. Are you okay with this? Maybe under certain circumstances. So there are some really in-depth conversations that honestly, I think every single couple should have. And I think that even if you're in a monogamous relationship, asking yourself these questions can help you to better understand some of your triggers, some of your fears, some of your desires. So there's, there is really in-depth discussion in healthy open relationships. People go to conferences to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. There are meetups, for example, for polyamorous people. If you just go to you know, that meetup site, you'll find polyamorous discussions on there. There mm -hmm. are workshops, there are classes. So it's not something you just, decide to do one day, uh, sort of like rope bondage. You can't just decide to tie your partner up with Shabar. You, you have to go take a class. You have to do the reading. You have to do the learning. And imagine we all invested this much into our relationships because CNM relationships are not necessarily more complicated than monogamous relationships because there is so much discussion that goes on. And our lack of discussion is oftentimes what complicates monogamous ones. It is a lot of discussion. There's a lot of back and forth. Um, you're always checking in and updating because needs change over time. Are boundaries crossed? Of course. I mean, boundaries are crossed in monogamous relationships all the time. In fact, I would suggest that they're crossed more often in monogamous relationships because people don't talk about what monogamy means. So I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. For example, 
you know, like if I'm dancing and grinding with someone on the dance floor, so I'm Jamaican, like we've always, dancing isn't sexual. I know North Americans look at Jamaican dancing like it's sexual, but it's not necessarily sexual. That might make a North American partner, a Canadian partner especially, uh, uncomfortable. But have we talked about that? If I have a really good friend and I'm sitting on their lap and we're just like joking around, how does that make my partner feel? And we have this expectation that what I feel, what I think is right, right? And what other people think is wrong. People will say, well, that's not right. Or Dr. Jess, tell them that that's not okay. And I'm like, well, I don't know if it's okay. You have to negotiate what your relationship entails. And, and people will always disagree with me and say, oh no, there, there are some fundamentals. It's not. Your fundamentals are individual, they're highly personal, and they're cultural. Other incidents people run into involves looking at other people, right? Or flirting with other people. In other cultures, flirtation is really the norm. I know that Canadians are not flirtatious people and flirtation is always expected to lead to some sort of sexual advance, but that is not the case across the world. And if you take a city like Toronto, where almost no one is from here, right? And if, even if we are from here, our parents aren't from here. It's not a Canadian culture. It's a blend of cultures. And I'm just using culture as an example. Oftentimes it's not about culture. It's, it's just about individual. And so I think lines are crossed in all relationships and you get over it, even with cheating. If every relationship were to break up because the, there was cheating involved, we'd have so few relationships left. It happens, and I'm not trying to say, oh, don't worry about it. It's just a little cheating. But you can overcome cheating. And, you know, it's Dan Savage who describes it as if you spend a lifetime together, 50 years together, and you're monogamous for all of those thousands of days, and one night you slipped up. Would you not still deem that relationship a success? Mm. But we treat, we, we treat sexual, I don't even like the word infidelity, but extra relational sexuality, like it is the worst thing you can do to your partner. And honestly, there are many bad things we do to our partners. We hurt one another all the time. We say things that cut and really hurt and we move on from it. And so people can move on from cheating. And I also think we, even in monogamous relationships, need to let go of the possessiveness that accompanies our relationships. The, you know, the notion that I, I should be in control of my partner. I have people who don't want their partner masturbating, who want to control whether or not their partners watch porn. And if you're trying to control your partner, you need to think about like, what is it that you're worried about? Because you're not worried about their behavior. You're worried about yourself. And so if we can turn it back and really get to your fear, what is that hot thought running through your head? Then we can have more meaningful conversations and not agree to disagree, but I, there's another sexologist in the field, sexologist Shamira, who says, don't agree to disagree, agree to understand, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just you're into porn, I'm not into porn, I don't want you watching porn, I want to watch porn. Fine, we just disagree on this, but let me try and understand why you want to watch porn. Is it escape from reality once in a while? Does it feel good to insert yourself in someone else's world, just like watching sci-fi or fantasy fiction? can produce a similar result. If I want to watch porn or, and you don't want to watch porn, how do I understand that perspective of, okay, you don't want, sorry, or you don't want me to watch porn. You don't want me to watch porn because those depictions of bodies make you feel inadequate or those depictions of pleasure are not reflective mm -hmm. of your own. And so that can start a whole conversation about not just we don't do that or real women don't do that. But, you know, if you were to bend me over that way, it would be uncomfortable. Or if you were to just shove it in that way, it would hurt. And here's why. Like it creates openings to have conversations that help you better understand your own needs and your partners. Porn is an interesting topic. It's something that we 
I feel often blame a lot of our relationship and sexual problems on right now. Like we use it as a scapegoat for, oh, well, now we have all these expectations that don't match up with reality. And that's why my partner's not satisfied sexually. Why do people like, I guess, fall to it that way? And how is that not necessarily the way that we should be thinking about porn? scapegoating porn is an easy thing to do. It's easy to say we broke up because he was addicted to porn or we're not having sex because they're watching porn or they suck in bed because they have these expectations from porn. And the first two, we have data to refute. So we have no evidence to suggest that let's say men, because they're the primary users and consumers of porn, although women are consuming it too. We have no evidence to suggest that men or women can no longer connect with a partner because of porn or that they need a specific type of sex because of porn. We also have evidence to suggest that porn addiction does not exist, that its diagnosis is what we call iatrogenic. That means that the symptoms occur in response to the diagnosis and not to the behavior itself. The APA, the American Psychological Association, has repeatedly denied the existence of porn addiction and will not include it in their DSM, their diagnostic manual, um, over and over again. It is a very profitable industry. It is an easy way to not take responsibility for your actions, right? Porn addiction and sex addiction. It's not my fault. I cheated. I'm addicted to sex. Listen, man, sex feels good. There are times when, of course, you want to go have sex with someone else. That doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. It, it may not even mean there's something wrong in your relationship. We have to really acknowledge that we may not be wired to be monogamous. That is not an excuse for saying, hey, I sign up for this monogamous relationship and oops, I cheated. We need a cultural shift so that people really consider, is monogamy the right thing for me? Because it is for many people, especially in the way you know our Western world is organized, mm -hmm. but it isn't for other people. And I'm seeing so many people cultivate happy, more open relationships, not in the old school way of you know, putting your keys in a bowl and picking a new partner and not in a, and you know, of course there are anarchists and that's okay for them, but not in necessarily an anarchist way, but in small ways, considering whether or not, first of all, you can love multiple people, not just have sex with multiple people, but you already love multiple people, right? You can love a best friend. You can love two siblings. You can love two children. And parents will often talk about how, you know, they have one child and they couldn't imagine loving another and then they have that second child and they love it almost as much no just kidding <laughs> they, love it, they love it just as much Poor, to go back to porn it is an easy out rather than looking at our own insecurities rather than looking at our own shortcomings because even with all the mm -hmm. information we're not the best lovers we can possibly be i mean i know that i don't do all the things i should prioritize i don't always prioritize sex and you know, I'm in this field and I'm expected to always have a 10 out of 10 sex life. And it's not always like that. Like, I mean, I like it. It's still pretty, still really good. I, and I really enjoy it. But I'll tell you with my career, for example, I don't always make as much time for it as I could. You know, I'm on the road more than 50% of the time. And so I come home and sometimes I'm just exhausted. And sometimes I push through and sometimes I'm like, oh, I just pass out. So if we were to go back to porn, uh, there are other theories that men are going to have erectile dysfunction because of porn. Yeah, that I've heard that. Refuted by hard data. 
this doesn't mean that you should watch porn. I'm not suggesting that porn is the best thing and everyone must watch it. Whatever your feelings toward it, they're valid. But if it's just a feeling of judgment, I, like judgment is the cue that you need to look a little bit deeper and you know acknowledge that it's not just about right and wrong. It's about your own values, your own feelings around sex, perhaps around bodies. Now, the one thing I will say, one of the challenges with porn is that in the absence of comprehensive sex education that acknowledges and talks about pleasure, we do know that people turn to porn as their source of education. And we need to get a little more rational with that because if you can watch Fast and the Furious and know that you shouldn't drive your car like that, if you can watch Top Gun and know that you don't get to fly a plane like that or you know any of these superhero movies, you can't scale a wall, you can't jump from building to building. You are able, from the age of six, to differentiate between fantasy and reality. We need to wake up and do the same thing with porn. Sure, it might inspire you. It might incite arousal. It might really give you ideas. It might start interesting conversations. But if you want to emulate what they're doing, you're probably going to be physically uncomfortable because they're sexual Olympians and also fall short. Right. For example, if you expect that you should be hard right away, right, you deliver the pizza, you put the pizza down, you let the pizza get cold, which is some bullshit right there. And then you, your penis is just hard and ready to go and you bend someone over. That may not be realistic. That might be realistic for some people sometimes, but that's not what sex looks like every day. And porn tends to leave out the relational piece, the foreplay piece. It is very male centric, uh, although it's changing. Like there's a whole genre of feminist porn and queer porn and porn created by couples and porn created with real people. And there, there's ethical porn where they. I was I interviewed uh, Jet Setting Jasmine the other day. So she is a porn actress as well as I mean she's brilliant. She has two master's degrees. She's a therapist. She is a producer. She has a production company as well, and she produces what's called ethical porn and so they interview the actors to see what they're into and they find a balance between the actors enjoying themselves and also creating something that's entertaining and visually appealing so this is this is all changing and hopefully with more ethical porn that's also hotter right because if they're really enjoying themselves and they're really feeling a connection with the actors with whom they're interacting it's going to be better for the viewers as well i think this is going to be a shift not only in the industry but in the way we see sex I'm an eternal optimist, so I see the future as bright, including as it pertains to porn. Fascinating. I want to shift a little bit and talk about sex drive. So a couple of years ago, I went through a period of time where my sex drive was like gone, nil, which of course took a toll in my relationship. It was because of a couple of different things. I was on birth control and I was having some hormonal problems and I was stressed and the system was just shut down. But I had a listener question. People are wondering if their sex drive is low, lower than what's normal for them maybe, what are some things that they can do to kind of increase that libido? I'm glad that you said low for them. So low sex drive, the way I think about it is if it's low to the point that it's distressful for you, right? Not distressful to the world, not distressful perhaps even to your partner, but distressful to you. It's usually lifestyle changes that lead to changing your sex drive. So changing what you eat, uh, being more mindful of your movement. And the number one thing is reducing stress because stress is the boner killer, right? And we all get boners, clitorises get boners, penises get boners. But when you are stressed out, 
it really detracts from your natural inclination towards sex. So unfortunately, it's not a pill. It's not a position. It's not as simple as just fantasizing, which of course can help. Mm -hmm. But it really is about shifting your lifestyle to reduce stress in your life. And that might mean making relationship changes. That might mean making practical changes. If, If it's your work that's stressing you out, maybe you stop taking your phone into the bedroom. If it's a certain person that's stressing you out, but you can't get them out of your life, maybe you don't take calls from them after a certain hour or you limit that time. And then the second piece is understanding that sexual desire is not always spontaneous. If you wait for the mood to strike you, it might never strike you. Oftentimes you have to get aroused and then you experience sexual desire. So if you're waiting for it to occur occur on its own, it may never happen. For me, it's like going to the gym. I would never wake up and think, oh, I really feel like going to the gym. I know there are people who are, who are like that, but many of us are not. But if you set a plan to go to the gym and you start working out, by the end, you're never regretting having worked out. You feel good because you worked out. And sex, to me at least, is far more pleasurable than, than working out. And so <laughs> if you were to reach down and touch yourself, if you were to get yourself physically aroused with a vibrator, you might find that you have what's called responsive sexual desire. So we have this notion that sexual desire should be spontaneous. And most of us, especially in long-term relationships, because there isn't as much novelty and risk and scarcity, most of us experience more responsive sexual desire. So that means arousal first desire, get yourself physically aroused first, and then the subjective arousal or desire occurs. And couples who have long-lasting, satisfying sex lives for many, many decades. It's because they understand that you have to cultivate sexual desire. It's not something that necessarily happens on its own and you're not necessarily broken. And this might just be a natural part of like the fluctuation in your desire for sex. Now, I just want to briefly mention that if you don't want sex with your partner, it's sometimes because the sex isn't that good. Right. So guys will come to me upset that their partner doesn't want sex. And then when I ask the the partner, you know, are you having orgasms or is it satisfying? They're like, it's okay. And so why would you really want to do something that's "Mm, okay? So you also need to look at what you're doing sexually. Are you doing what feels really good for you? And masturbating and getting to know your body is a step in better understanding your own pleasure. I feel like there's a theme here where we need to take more control personally over our sexual well-being and what we want. And then yeah, not just expecting it to happen and just expecting that it, our sex life is going to be good just because we're in a relationship. Yeah, we have this assumption that if you're attracted to one another or if you're meant to be or if you're in a happy relationship, mm-hmm. that the flames of passion will never burn out. But in fact, sometimes in the happiest relationships, there's no desire for sex because everything's going well. So there isn't a risk. There isn't a challenge. The reason you were so attracted in the beginning was because there was novelty. There was unknown. There was unpredictability. You were dealing with fear and anxiety. The fear and anxiety can actually be very exciting. And I find that oftentimes therapists are so hung up on creating comfort and love and eliminating any fear and anxiety that you can lose the passion. So what you want to do in, in, from my perspective is cultivate a foundation of love and trust and comfort and safety that is so strong that you can do things that feel risky together because in that risk is where you develop the excitement and the passion and the drive. I had another listener question. Uh, Someone was interested in hearing about sex clubs. 
I'm not very familiar with this, so I'm hoping that you can tell us a little bit about what they are, what you might find there, why you would go to one. Do you go by yourself? Do you go as a couple? How do these work? I recommend everybody consider going to a sex club. And so every sex club is a little bit different, but oftentimes sex clubs are spaces that are like a nightclub, but there might be areas of the club designated for sex. So it might be a room with mattresses, it might be a dungeon with various props to which you can tie yourself or tie your partner. There might be a hot tub, there might be a shower room, there might be a public room or even private rooms you can slip in. There's usually poles you can dance on. And when you walk into a sex club, you're probably not going to see an orgy unless it's a special orgy night and it's <laughs> or something like that. But you'll probably just see people dancing and socializing and having a drink. People don't get drunk generally at sex clubs the way they do at nightclubs. People won't come up to you and just try and grind on you without permission the way they do at nightclubs. There's a lot, you know, in an ideal world, of course, there are always violators in any space because human beings <laughs> can violate, but you'll find a lot more permission requesting and permission giving in sex clubs. So mm -hmm. I can speak, for example, about Oasis Aqua Lounge, which is in Toronto. And so this is a sex club that has different theme nights. They have a sapphic event that is only for women. They have couples nights where you can only come as a couple. They have threesome nights. They have student nights for the university students. They have uh, trans only nights. They have a lot of different themes and events. Mm -hmm. And they're open, I think, seven days a week from the morning to the night because they have a pool. So people go to chill at the pool and they're downtown Toronto in sort of an old mansion i guess is the way to describe where it where is that located it's at carlton and jarvis in toronto okay cool um, yeah so it, it's a really really cool space it's exceptional even in comparison to other sex sex clubs around the world so you can go to a sex club and not do anything you can just go to enjoy the vibe you can go to push your comfort zone and just be there you can go to observe you can go to be an exhibitionist and just have sex with your partner with potentially other people near you or you know there's sex clubs where there are separate beds and you can kind of tie a white sheer curtain around you. So there's a place I go, it's not a sex club, it's a resort called Desire Resorts in Mexico. And there's a rooftop, rooftop jacuzzi with these four poster beds. And a lot of action happens in the jacuzzi. But if you want to break off on your own, you can go into one of those four poster beds and tie the sheer white curtains around you. So it's sort of like sex in public, but you can also have some privacy. So I think if you've never seen real life sex, it's an opportunity to consider because through porn, we see a very one dimensional portrayal of sex. And those are actors, just like if you're watching a rom-com, you can't take it seriously. They're acting, seeing real live people with real bodies of all ages and all shapes and sizes mm. to me is, is quite revolutionary. I, I know the first time I saw real life sex, it helped to change the way I felt about my own sex life, about my own body. I certainly appreciate beauty and sensuality and eroticism in a broader range of bodies now. I really am not afraid of aging because I've seen people of all ages kind of enjoying themselves and enjoying love and enjoying touch and connection and sex. And we make a joke of older folks having sex, right? The sex is one of these things that we, we all talk about. We, well, we don't talk about it seriously, but we joke about it or we use it to sell products but it's for a very limited audience, right? Like you're supposed to be a certain age, a certain body type in a certain type of relationship. 
to embrace sex, but people of all walks of life, people of all body types are entitled to their own bodies and their own sexual pleasure. And so I just think it's, it's, it was a moving experience for me the first time, you know, long, it was a long time ago, over a decade ago. And every time I go, I think it's really cool to see people enjoying themselves and letting their guard down. And I can tell you this, when I first went to Desire Resorts, it's a clothing optional couples only resort. I was 26 years old. So I was on the very young side to be there. Uh, you know, I have a body that is more magazine looking in terms of build. And I saw the way women who were 20 years older than me, definitely less magazine looking, owning their bodies and owning their sexuality and walking around like they had not a care in the world because they were in their own space and taking up space. And I remember thinking at 26, God, like where, where do I get what she's got? Mm. And I also saw the way my husband was able to kind of admire and respect and honor various body types. And it reminded me that there's not one way to look. There's not one way you must look in order to be attractive. We've created a cultural expectation of what beauty is and what body should look like. And that's that kind of magazine build, but I didn't have half that confidence. Right. And so I remember that was a life changing trip for me where I kind of stopped worrying about, and I, I have to admit, I haven't, I've always kind of been pretty body positive because I was an athlete and, you know, being into the way I look wasn't a primary concern, uh, even though now, because I work in television and I worked for Playboy, you know, I wear makeup and, and stuff like that. And I, I do like that. You know, I didn't grow up hating my body or anything like that. And I would credit that perhaps to sports. Although I did hear a lot of negative messages. Like there was someone in my life who would be like, oh, look, she's gained weight or she's fat. Like I heard that. But for some reason, I thought it was ridiculous. Even as like a seven-year-old, I would hear that. And I was a gymnast. I was a scrawny little thing. And when they, this person, this adult in my life said that, I kind of laughed at it. I thought, oh my God, it's ridiculous. And I also wonder if not watching television growing up helped me. I wasn't into TV. I couldn't sit still in front of the TV. So I wonder if I didn't <laughs> engage and consume the same images as my friends, like I remember going to their houses and there'd be posters of people on their walls and I kind of almost wouldn't even know who they were um, and certainly wouldn't consider wanting to put a poster on my wall. So maybe my expectations were tempered by a lack of exposure to one dimensional pop culture. But anyhow, to back to the desire story, it, it was a life changing thing for me where I decided that I'm just life's too short to not love my body. This is the vessel that carries me through life. The world is designed to profit off my not liking my body. And so I like it and I appreciate it. And it does good things for me. I mean, I wish my right eyebrow would behave, but <laughs> I was like, Oh, I'm preaching body positivity, except for this jerk, right eyebrow. <laughs> I can't be sisters instead of cousins. Right. <laughs> wow, that sounds so powerful. You're definitely selling me on them. And, yeah. and again, if you're going to go, I don't suggest you go to have sex. I always mm. think that you should set boundaries before you go. Like, for example, we're going to go for 45 minutes and we're just going to dance with one another. And don't assume that when people come up to talk to you that they're trying to have sex with you. It's, not, it's really not like that. In fact, I would say there is less pressure around being picked up at a sex club versus at a regular club where it feels like, especially for women, it feels like people, they're moving from person to person, just trying to find someone who's interested sometimes. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Wow. It sounds awesome. It also sounds really interesting for someone that maybe hasn't had as much, like maybe it's in a monogamous relationship and hasn't had as many sexual experiences because, wow, how much do you stand to learn? And it, it could be so eye opening for you to, as you're saying, even just observe, like whatever you're comfortable with. But that sounds amazing. Yeah. And, and if the idea of a sex club makes you uncomfortable or you're shutting down at the thought of it or even judging the thought of it, that's again indication that you want to ask yourself like what about it makes me so frightened Mm -hmm. right where is the threat here Mm -hmm. definitely and that doesn't mean you need to go i just want people to consider why they might like to attend or why they might not and oasis was one of the safest spaces by the way they have newbie nights where they will give you a tour of a of a club there are sexologists and you can holler at me luna matadas for example Uh, she's so amazing she does tours of a sex club so if you're a couple going for the first time or even a single on a night where singles are welcome she'll do a tour with you no pressure and introduce you to people as well and they do workshops there so you'll meet people it's one of the coolest vibes honestly i I don't go out a ton because i i really I, i fly every week and i work a lot but when i have done events for example at oasis i've wanted to stay after because the vibe is just so good Awesome. Jess, I feel like I could talk to you for two more hours. I have like so many other questions popping up in my head, but we are running a little bit low on time. So I want to round out. I have just a quick fire round for you. So it'll be just quick questions. You can give me quick answers and we'll round out this hour. Sound good? Sounds good. If you had to suggest one item for people to buy to spice up their sex life, what would you recommend? Lubricant. Where was the best vacation you've ever been on? It was, it was Portugal, actually, because my dog was there, because we brought the dog. Oh, awesome. What kind of dog? She's a Pomeranian, but I, unfortunately, she passed. So that's why that's like a recent memory that I had. Mm-hmm. Of tra- we love traveling with her, and it was a big thing that she often came with us. But that was a highlight vacation. Lisbon and Porto and wandering the streets and drinking coffee. Love it. If you could be on a reality TV show, which one would you choose? Ha, huh. so I hosted a reality TV show, so I'd never want to be in a reality TV show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It would be about business. It would have to be about business. What's your current favorite sex position? On the bottom, lying on my stomach. <laughs> Where I don't do any of the work. <laughs> the best. I love that. Okay, my final question for you. I ask everyone this that comes on the podcast, but what makes you excited to get out of bed in the morning? Oh man, every day. Like I love life. Life is so good. So I'm excited for my work. I'm excited for my relationship. I'm excited for the travels. I'm going to France today. I was in India last week. Like every day is exciting. Also, I love airplanes. If I'm flying a 787, that makes me super excited. (laughs) That's good because you're on them. You're on airplanes a lot. So (laughs) I'm glad. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing with us. This has been so interesting and so fun. Um, If people want to learn more about you or connect with you on social, find your website, how do they go about doing that? I'm sex with Dr. Jess on all social platforms, sexwithdrjess.com. And that's the name of my podcast as well. Thank you, Jess. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of How Do You Feel? I hope everyone learned something about sex today. Just a reminder that we release a new podcast episode every Monday morning, so make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss one of those. Please rate, review, share the podcast with your friends, spread the word about How Do You Feel? Thanks so much for listening this week, guys. I hope that everyone has an amazing rest of their holiday. Make sure you get out there and do something that makes you feel good today. 